Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Week 12 edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. How about them, Jets? They have a two-game winning streak for the first time in 20 games. Obviously, the first one under Adam Gase. Now, if only they could gain admission into the NFC East, they would be a real threat. The Jets, of course, are 3-1 and one against the NFC East. They beat the Giants and the Redskins, but, you know, those teams are a combined 3-17, and 17, also with a couple of rookie quarterbacks. So perspective is important here. Don't celebrate too much, but at the same time, don't dismiss it. You know, look, two weeks ago, the Jets were in a really vulnerable state after losing to Miami, and now they have the Raiders coming to town. The Raiders are 6-4. and four. They're in first place in the AFC West. I think they're a little bit overrated because they only have one win against a team with a winning record, and they're just off a cushy three-game homestand, and they won all three. Uh, so, yes, I, I do think the Jets have a chance in this game, but we'll get into that a little bit more as we go on. We have a terrific show this week. In the second quarter, we will have Jets legend Mark Gastineau, who has some good news to share. Third quarter, we'll take the Twitter questions. But for now, I just want to talk about the endorsement, Christopher Johnson's public vote of confidence for Adam Gase. And we didn't get a chance to talk about it last week because it came after our, our show, but I have a couple of thoughts on it. You know, I thought at first it was an overzealous show of faith in Gase considering the product on the field. But, you know, as time's gone by, you can see why Johnson did it. As we all know, he did it before the Giants game and after the embarrassing loss to Miami. That's when the Jets were one and seven, basically at rock bottom. That's when he told the team privately that he wanted Gase back and that he was committed to Adam Gase. And I think a couple of things, you know, he wanted to quiet the noise, the outside noise, which quite frankly had made its way into the Jets locker room. I had one player come up to me and ask me privately, he goes, do you think Adam's really going to get fired? So I think Christopher Johnson addressed it head on, knowing that uh, this would be, you know, the kind of impact it would have. And also, you know, also knowing, and this is this is an important thing to know here, knowing that his team was about to face two tomato cans coming up in Giants and Washington. So, so now the Jets were, you know, they fortunate, you know, they beat those guys. But uh, to me, it kind of reminded me of the manager in baseball, you know, who tries to rally his team by calling a team meeting. You do it on the day your ace is on the mound, and it's funny how those team meetings work. When your ace is on the mound, you're knowing that, and you can get a victory at it. So in a sense, I think that's what Christopher Johnson did. So he didn't announce it publicly until a week later after they beat the Giants. And I truly wonder what he would have done had they lost that game. But now, so they're 2-0 and since the endorsement. But, you know, don't trace this mini turnaround to the Kings' speech to the team. I think it's mostly because they beat bad teams. You know, and but they have an opportunity this weekend to really build on that, to send a message that they can beat a better team and not just bottom feeders. And after the Raiders, they have two more bad teams in Cincinnati and Miami again. So if the Jets don't emerge with at least five wins here, something is bad wrong. But um you know, I think through all the smoke and all the tumult, I think we've starting to see what the Jets really are. 
and this is an important stat. The Jets are a three and four team when Sam Darnold is the starting quarterback. Three and four averaging 20 points per game, which is obviously not good enough by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not as bad as 0-3 averaging 8 points a game, which is what they were in the Luke Falk era, and I use the term loosely. But uh, So I thought the Jets would be a 7-win team at the start of the season. I don't think they're going to get to 7 now, but they should finish with 5, maybe 6 if they steal one towards the end, and that's not good, of course, especially when you consider 9 straight years out of the playoffs. But, you know, it shows, we know, we know what it shows. The roster is going to need an overhaul, especially on offense. And I still think there are some questions about whether Adam Gase is the right guy for the long term. But he's going to be the guy, whether you like it or not. Christopher Johnson made that clear. So I think, you know, going into the offseason, you just have to hope that Joe Douglas has the Midas touch and he can get this thing turned around. That's the end of the first quarter. And welcome to the second quarter. I am honored and privileged to have our special guest this week. He's a member of the Jets Ring of Honor. He's a five-time pro bowler, a three-time all-pro, 74 career sacks, and it's really a lot more than that because they only started counting sacks in 1982 as an official stat. He is number 99. He'll always be number 99 in Jets history. Uh, none other than Mark Gastido. Mark, you thanks so much for being our our guest this week. Thank you, Rich. Thanks so much. That's five time All Pro. <laughs> five. Oh, I only had you for three. My bad. Yeah. I, I owe you okay. two All Pros. They're hard to make. That's all the reason I corrected you. <laughs> no, that was uh, no matter how many you you, have, you made, you definitely had a great career with the Jets, and I think uh, as as by being a member of the Ring of Honor, I think Jet fans know how important you are to the history of the team. And But the most important thing is I want the fans to know how you're doing. I know uh, a little over a year ago, I think most folks know that you know you were diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer. You've gone through a heck of a battle over the last year or so. And how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I, I just had a, a checkup. I have to – I'm still not out of the uh... – you know, out of the weather, because, you know, I'm cancer. They, my wife can explain it better. Just one second. He can explain it. He's in remission, cancer-free, so for the next five years, every three months, he has a checkup. He just had his first three-month checkup, which is showing remission. His next checkup will be around Super Bowl time, and they'll have a CAT scan, more blood work, we just keep doing that for five years. After the five years, if everything's good, then he'll be officially cancer-free. That's great. And this is, of course, Joanne, Mark's uh, lovely wife, and it's great to have her on as well. And so, Mark, just going through this this process and, you know, knock on wood and, and you know, um, th- thank God that you're doing well. But what's it been like going through this? As a football player, you always played in pain. You always had injuries. But what was it going through like this? Later in life, you know, this sort of life-and-death battle. There's nothing that compares to this. Football was just a walk in the park. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is uh, the most pain and the most uh, devastating thing that I've ever had. But the the good news is the, uh, the fans have been such a great support for me. You know, I have a, a GoFundMe page and, uh, 
you know, they've donated. They they helped me out with my prescriptions and and all my medical uh, expenses. They've really, really, you know, stepped up to the plate and uh, really helped me on my GoFundMe page. And uh, it really has been a blessing for us not to have to, you know, worry about our medical and everything else like that and uh, all the bills that come in. And we're in the process of uh, going through a battle with uh, city city mortgage with our house. And the Jet fans have just really, I can't say enough about them, Rich. Mm-hmm. They've really, really been there for me. That's really good to hear. And I, I'm just wondering, going through this process for over a year with the medical issues and the health issues, have you learned anything about yourself? What, like, what is what has been like? What is Mark Gastineau going through something like this? What have you learned about yourself? Well, I've learned that that my my uh, condition has has helped other people because if there's anything out there that I can say to people is to go get tested. That's my number one uh, mission as far as me telling people what to do mm-hmm. you know you can tell you can coach football you can do this you could do that but the most important thing if you're if you're 35 40 years old go get tested for cancer for colon cancer because if i would have gone and gotten tested i wouldn't have, i wouldn't be going through all this mm-hmm. so the main thing that i can tell people is get tested that's the most important thing if you haven't gotten tested, you don't know what's going on in your body, then it can it can take you like a thief in the night. It, you'll just get blindsided. Mm-hmm. And trust me, the doctors need to know beforehand so they can catch it and so they can start, you know, treatments on you instead of just waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and you know... I know that people are out there listening to this and they're saying, oh, I should go get tested. I should go get tested. Don't should. Do it. Mm-hmm. Just do it. Go get tested because that's my that's my most important goal is to let people know what can happen to, to them, Rich. Well, that's a wise message from Mark Gastineau who, who lived it, and uh, we really appreciate that, and I'm sure the fans do too. I just want to turn it to uh, football a little bit now. This is uh, 40 years ago. The Jets drafted this young buck out of a small school in Oklahoma. Can you believe it's been 40 years since the Jets drafted you, Mark? My no, God. I can't believe that. That, 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 that just overwhelms me. <laughs> what do you remember about that day? Because I think there was also there was some rumors that in the second round there that you almost ended up in Buffalo. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Buffalo called me. They said that they had drafted me, and then they called me right back, and they said that they had made a mistake, and uh, they said that they didn't draft me, and so I was worried. My parents were there. We were all in the kitchen huddled around the phone, and uh, – they called back and said they, they had made a mistake, and, and then we hung up the phone, and then I sat down in, on the uh, wooden table. We had an oak, oak round oak table. I sat down on the round oak table uh, with my mom and dad and, and uh, my sister, my little sister, and we all started worrying, and the Jets called me, you know, in the second round, a little late in the second round. 
and uh, we were going to, I was headed to New York, and uh, my mom was really upset that that uh, that I had been drafted by the Jets because she didn't like New York. She didn't know anything about it. She's from Oklahoma. Right. And so, you know, everybody had their different, you know, opinions on it. My dad was glad that I got drafted. I was glad that I got drafted. I didn't care where I went. And uh, I was just glad that I got drafted. And then the things that that I remember the most is uh, the friendships that I made at that point in time that I didn't know were going to last for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was with Connie Kahlberg. You know, she was the, she's the person that drafted me. Right. And she was a scout. And uh, she called, she's the one that called me up and said, would you like to play for the New York Jets? And I, I did my first dance right then, right then (laughs) and there. And uh, Connie and I have been friends for the last 40 years. She still, she sent me a birthday card uh, yesterday and uh, I got it and, um, I have to interrupt. Mark's birthday is on Wednesday. Happy birthday to my husband. Oh, happy birthday, Mark. That's, uh, yeah. that's a good birthday. And for those who, who don't know Connie, Connie, as Mark mentioned, was a scout, actually the first uh, female scout in NFL history, and she's lo- a lovely woman, and she comes up to training camp every year. She's about the, as big a Jet fan as you will ever find, and I know that Mark and Connie just have an incredibly strong and, and long friendship that's lasted for four decades and and uh where would you be without connie right mark <laughs> no yeah well i'll call connie up every once in a while i'll tell her if it wasn't for you connie this wouldn't have happened <laughs> yeah. so mark when i say when i say the words new york sack exchange what comes into your mind just sacks just sacks mm-hmm. just a bunch of sacks that, that we just great times just they were great times, Rich. Uh, you know, times that you know you just would like to be able to go back to because it was four of us, and we just gave that quarterback. We gave each quarterback a hard time, and let me tell you something: we never let them rest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I mean you guys were just uh, utterly dominant in the early 1980s. Joe Klecko, of course, Marty Lyons, Abdul Salam, and Mark Gastineau comprised. What I think, really, in the Jets' history, uh, in terms of identity, up with it's right up there with Joe Namath as as some of the biggest identities in New York Jets history. Now, you guys were an interesting bunch of, of players. The four of you, you know, you had different personalities. You probably didn't get along all the time. What about later in life? Now, uh, do you keep in touch with with those guys? And what's the relationship yeah. like like now? Yeah, back then, you know, there was all, you know, we had, everybody had each other, everybody had his his, his own, like, mission, you know, and, and now, you know, we, we've settled down and we've got families and we have time for each other. We call each other and, and they call me when I got sick, you know, every one of them call me and it was just really, really, uh, kind marty lyons called me first one right out of the bat he called me first one and joe Klecko called me abdul salam and i keep in touch almost every week so that's great yeah yeah so, yeah that's... They're, they're really they're really close to me now looking back on your career mark you, you put up so many great numbers and you were really i mean 
the epitome of a football star at the time uh, in New York. I mean, you and Lawrence Taylor at the time were the biggest names in, in New York football. Is there anything you, any regrets, anything you wish you could do over? I wish I would have been a better example for the kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have been a better example, you know, led, you know, led on and off the field, you know. But, you know, I was I was full of um I was just full of life and and uh you know, it was hard to tame me. It was hard to get me to calm down and uh you know, I had a few experiences, you know, with the law and stuff like that, but you know what? And now now the law is is there some of my best friends patty lynch is uh you know the pba president and he has me i do uh i do little engagements for them autograph signings and stuff like that and the pba and and the police officers and everything else like that i always we always pray for them Mm-hmm. We always tell them what a fine job they do and and how much they protect us and how how great that they are to have. Now, in 1984, you set the record with 22 sacks, which is just a, a mind-boggling uh, amount of quarterback sacks in one season. How did you feel when Michael Strahan broke that record? Because he kind of broke it on a cheap play. You know, Brett Favre kind of took a dive there at the end. How did you? And I know you were there, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. How how did you feel about Michael breaking your record? It was a shock. It was it was something that I had no idea. You know, I still to this day can't believe it. Mm-hmm. He can't believe it. I, I think that he wishes that he wouldn't have gotten it that way. Uh, I know that he wishes he hadn't gotten it that way. He wishes that somebody would beat it. And this, uh, what this, uh, what's his name? The one that just got in trouble. He was on. He was on. He was on a uh, pace to maybe even beat the record. So, Miles Garrett. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of that play the other night when he uh, took off his helmet and started hitting a quarterback? Well, that was just uh, something that I can't even imagine doing. I can't even imagine doing that. You can't, can't even, I, I, I don't know what got in his head. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, he, he sure is regretting it. Just something that he did out of the spur of the moment. I just, I can't even put myself in that position because I've never taken off my helmet. I've, I've had fights. We've had fights out on the field. Sure. You know, Jackie Slater and I, the whole team came at me. Right. That was and, a famous one. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it just got famous lately, you know, in the last couple of years. <laughs> well, I think but, there, there was a playoff game when you guys played the Raiders. Al, Lyle Alzado took off his helmet and he threw it at Chris Ward. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't think Chris, he hit him, but he took his helmet off and threw it at him. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, yeah, that Chris was Chris Ward was so afraid of him. <laughs> <laughs> was he afraid of Alzado? Yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't want to have to. I think I'd be afraid of Alzado too if I had to block him. Yeah, or, God bless his soul. Or block you for that matter. But uh, what was the highlight of your career? What are you most proud of? Uh, probably you know getting the sacks and um, Mount Sinai. I I had something that uh, that raised money for the kids mm-hmm. for a foundation. And I donated a thousand dollars a sack that year, and that—that's when I had the most sacks. Oh, okay. And uh, my the commercial with my mom. 
Right. That was that was one that I that I really enjoyed doing. She's passed away last year, but you know, the commercial with Morocco Razor and my mom. I remember it. Yes. Yeah, that was that was one of my highlights. Yeah, but that's, that's so cool. The Jets are doing really. You know, the Jets are are really. I think that they've really got a good team. And I said that before. They just needed to get it together. Together, and and uh, I think that um, you know Connie was a big. She was a big. She was really high on uh, Darnold, mm-hmm. and she was so so excited about you know getting to watch him play. And I think what she told me is now he's he's starting to play exactly the way that she thought that uh, that he was capable of. Mm-hmm. And um, he, you know, the Jets. Let me tell you, they just they they just weren't clicking at the fir- at first. Right. And now they're they they seem to have it all together. Well, here's a here's a little stat that I know you could appreciate. In the last three games, the Jets have made 16 quarterback sacks. That is the most over three games since 1981 New York Sack Exchange. How does that grab wow. it? <laughs> That's great. That's great. That is great. Do you watch yeah, them? They're, 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 they're really, their offense, defense, they're really getting after it. They really are. and I, I, it's, They're enjoyable watching now. This number 33, Jamal Adams, their safety is a pretty good player, huh? Yeah, grabbing that ball out of the quarterback and yeah. running for a touchdown—that was great. Did you ever do that when you were trying to sack? You ever just no, swipe the no, ball no, out of his no. head? No, that, that, that was a heads-up play. Yeah, he was really heads-up, boy. That was great. I, I love that play, especially since it was against the Giants too. Probably right. Oh, no, I know. I mean, but that—that that even made that—that that even that was a cherry on top of the cake. Yeah, that was good. So you do you get you do get a chance to watch the current team. Then you're you're kind of into the current state of the team yeah i don't have cable tv i have an antenna mm-hmm. on my on my house so sometimes the antenna you know will get all turned around and my wife and i'll be outside trying to adjust it to get uh, the games right <laughs> well we're gonna have to get you in the digital world now we'll there, to... <laughs> we there we go there we go i just wanted to ask you before i let you go i'd be remiss if i didn't ask this I, because prior to the cancer you also went through some uh health issues uh i think it was about four or five years ago when you announced uh you know you were dealing with some dementia that you thought was due to football uh how are you doing with that and and do you is there any if you had to do it again would you play football knowing what you know and that the impact it has on on brain health i would definitely play football Mm -hmm. i definitely would play football i just uh i think the only thing is the um the players need to be taken care of. That's that's the only thing. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to badmouth the NFL, but they just need to, you know, step up maybe a little bit and, and start paying the players. Yeah, because you uh, you were pretty outspoken about that. You know, when you, when you were diagnosed, how are you doing? Like on a daily basis with that, or how are you handling I'm, it? My wife, if, my, if if I'm doing bad, my wife wouldn't tell me anyway. So she just <laughs> loves me the way I am. <laughs> well, that's yeah. I'm going for more tests, though. Yeah, that's. Uh, I know I've talked to so many former players, and they have so many concerns about it. Do you have concern, like long term? Health concerns about the particular, you know, just from the impact of of head yeah. head trauma. Yeah, that's why I'm going for tests. Yeah, 
Well, I hope uh, I hope they turn out okay, and it's great news, you know, with your cancer prognosis. And as you mentioned earlier, if the fans want to contribute, you know, you do have the GoFundMe page set up, and I know oh. you, you have legions of fans out there. That, one last thing, Mark, when you go out in public, like when you, if you're going to dinner, you know, and you, do you still do the fans still recognize you? I'm sure they yes, do, right? They do. And, and yes, what, what do. kind of reaction do you do you get when you go out in public? I sign every autograph. I've never turned down an autograph, and I just love I love the fact that they really you know take pictures and want to be want to be a part of my life, and that that's really great. And uh, it just shows that, and 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 you know that I appreciate you saying that on the GoFundMe because. Our goal was seventy five thousand, and we're almost halfway there. So, you know, that's just a big, big help for us, Rich. You know, well, I and my my wife, you know, she sometimes get you know cries and stuff. I'll see her crying. She's worried about losing the house and stuff. So that that really is a is a worry in our in our in the back of our heads, you know. Well, I know, speaking for Jet fans, I'm sure uh, we wish you the best with that issue and also, most importantly, with your health. Godspeed as you continue to battle through that. And I think um, I I can say this without any doubt, there will never be another Mark Gastineau in terms of uh, football and New York football or football anywhere, really. So uh, Godspeed to you, my friend, and thank you so much for coming on the show. God bless you. Thank you, Rich. And take care, Joanne. Bye now. Okay. Bye-bye. And welcome to the third quarter. This is the Twitter mailbag. Got some great, great questions this week on a bunch of different topics. The first one from at Mogefs. Granted, we're playing bad teams, but is there any merit to the fact that this offensive line has more chemistry because all of these guys got reps together as the second team line, aside from Beecham? Uh, yeah, you know, I think that is a really good point because the guys who are playing now were, were working together in the preseason together as the backups. And I also know this in the last three games, uh, with Jonathan Harrison at center as opposed to Ryan Khalil, their pass protection has improved. And I do think there is some merit to that because, uh, Harrison knows the offense. And uh, really has done a good job of coordinating things in their last three games. Let me just throw out this number. The Jets are averaging 7.41 yards per pass attempt. In the three previous games, it was 6.02. So about a yard and a half better. And the sack percentage has dipped considerably. Last three games, their sack percentage is only 7%. In the previous three, it was 11.7%. So I think... Harrison, in particular, has brought some stability to it. Ryan Khalil is now on injured reserve. And I wrote this earlier, I think, and from talking to some players, I think the fact that Khalil came in so late and had his own way of doing things, different techniques, different philosophy, I think it disrupted the chemistry on the line. And I know some players weren't thrilled by that. And now they have Harrison back there. Look, he's not an all-pro center by any means, but he's a very popular guy, a well-liked guy, and he's a hard worker. And I think that's one of the reasons why you've seen improvement in their uh, play and, in particular, the pass protection. The next question comes from at Dan Schnock. Uh, There's a lot of pressure on Joe Douglas to produce this offseason and in the draft. 
in, in one offseason, it seems like an awfully short window. Realistically, how often do NFL draft picks turn into solid NFL contributors for their original team? So, I mean, that really depends on the round you're picking them because the pre- the percentages decline for each round. But uh, let me bring this up. The Jets are playing the Raiders, and I think the Raiders are a great example. They had a fantastic draft last year with John Gruden and Mike Mayock running things. They lead the NFL. Their rookie class leads the NFL in scrimmage touchdowns, scrimmage yards, rushing yards, and catches and sacks. Their rookie class is having a phenomenal year. Of course, they had three first-round picks. The Jets won't have that. But uh, it's an example of how one draft class can really make a significant impact on a team. And so that's what Joe Douglas will be shooting for in the offseason. The next question is from at EZ underscore racer. If the Jets trade away Adams, the move will be very unpopular among fans how much would that type of pushback affect Christopher Johnson in signing off on the move, considering he has to think about public relations and ticket and merchandise sales? Let me just say this, and this is a good question. First of all, Christopher Johnson has deferred to Joe Douglas on that. He is essentially saying that Douglas will make that decision, and I think Christopher will go with any recommendation that his football people tell him. And that's the way to do it. You don't want to start making football decisions based on ticket sales and merchandise. The Jets did that back with Tim Tebow, and look where that got him. It was a disaster. So you want to make football decisions on these type of decisions. And I I think Jamal is going to want to be the highest paid safety in the league. That's what I've heard from around the league. I think he's going to be looking for at least $15 a year, which is basically three times what he's making now. And the Jets are going to have to weigh the economics of it, weigh the roster composition, put it all together, find out what they could get for him in a trade, and make a decision best for the team. And I think Christopher Johnson wisely is going to leave that up to Joe Douglas and take away the marketing aspect of it because you don't win with marketing. You win with good football players. Next question from at Sam E. Darnold. What are the Jets' options with Quincy Anunua? They just signed him, but uh, I know what he did uh, was not acceptable for the team trying to build a new culture going forward. And for those of you who missed that last week, uh, Quincy was fined 27900 for missing two mandatory rehab sessions. And he uh, went on Twitter and basically blasted the organization for uh, excessive fines. I wrote this the other day. I think Quincy was in the wrong on that, and I think he was knows he was wrong by missing those mandatory sessions. I think where the Jets aired was the communications, because from my reporting on it, I was told that Quincy got the runaround. He couldn't get a good answer from anyone in the organization. So that concerns me a little bit. But looking forward, I do think they will cut him, not because of this recent incident, which I know they weren't thrilled about, but just the fact that he's coming back from a very serious neck injury. Even Quincy himself said he's got a 50-50 chance of playing again. The Jets have to make a decision by the fifth day of the league year, and that's in March. If he's on the roster after the fifth day, his $6 million salary for 2020 becomes fully guaranteed. I think the Jets will not want to guarantee that salary for a wide receiver coming off a serious neck injury. So I think they'll release him before then. And then what you're going to have now, and I can see this coming a mile away from doing some reporting on this subject, 
You might have an issue about that $6 million salary because I think right now it's guaranteed for injury. And I think if Quincy retires, he will certainly feel he's entitled to that money. And the Jets could up put up a fight. And so you could get a little nasty grievance going on with regard to that money. So stay tuned on that. Next question from at EEPTR. What's up with Quinn and Williams? Was it a mistake for the Jets to use their highest draft pick in a generation on a low-impact position like interior defensive line over a high-impact position like edge rusher or tackle? Uh, this is a fair question because Quinn and Williams has been a disappointment to this uh, point. He's averaging about 40 to 45 snaps a game. In the last two games, he's had zero tackles. Now, he has had two quarterback hits, but he's had zero tackle tackles in the last two games. Uh, he did have one sack against Miami, but he was unblocked on that play. He came free and sacked the quarterback. He did miss time with a high ankle sprain, and that injury was more serious than anyone was letting on. So I will cut him some slack there. But you would like to see a strong finish from Quinnen because the numbers aren't there. You guys know how I feel about that. We talked about it way back in the spring. I thought they should have drafted Josh Allen, the edge rusher. He's having a really good year. It's too early to Quinnen's a bust. He's not a mistake. He's young. He's learning. But the production so far hasn't uh, been up to the standard that they would like. And our last question from uh, Bono Zaffa. How much do you dislike Le'Veon Bell exactly? We all know you had issues with him holding out in Pittsburgh, that you felt that the Jets overpaid to sign him as a free agent, that not playing him in the preseason was problematic, and now you're saying the Jets should trade him this offseason. Well, there's a lot in there to unpack, and I'm going to take it one at a time, uh, Bono. Number one, I never had issues with him holding out in Pittsburgh. First of all, it wasn't a holdout. It was a contract dispute. There's a difference. Uh, I never criticized him for that. Uh, uh, yes, I think I did say the Jets overpaid him because all free agents get overpaid. It's just what free agency is about. However, I did advocate for the Jets to sign Bell. And when they did sign him, I said it was a good move. So you're wrong on that front. And then you're saying not playing him in the preseason was problematic. Yes, I did raise that issue a couple of times in the preseason. I thought it was problematic. And... Um, who knows? It still could be affecting him in the end. Uh, probably not as big a deal as I made it out to be. So I'll give you that one. And then you're saying that I should trade, they should trade him in the offseason. Uh, I, uh, that's not me saying it. I'm saying that's what I think the Jets will do. And I am not making this stuff up at a thin air. I am basing it on reporting people I talk to. I do think the Jets will trade him in the offseason. The Jets think he's a good player, but they just feel that he's, Probably not a right fit for them. Kind of a luxury right now for a team that's going through a transition. He'd be much better served. And I think Le'Veon, in a truthful moment, would probably say this. He'd probably be better used on a team that's in contention as opposed to a team that's going through some rebuilding. So that's why I do think the Jets will trade him. So, Bono, get your facts straight before you attack me because you were wrong on a lot of this stuff. And I'm glad you brought the question up because I just wanted to clear the air. And that is the end of the third quarter. This is the red zone. And, you know, I wanted to talk about, we, we mentioned him at the top of the show and I wanted to get back to, you know, Christopher Johnson fans, I know have some very strong opinions about the way he's been running the team. And, and a lot of them are perfectly valid questions. He, he's made some mistakes and fans 
would like to see more of him. He spoke to the media last week. It was really like a behind-closed-doors impromptu session at practice with a small group of reporters. He doesn't do big press conferences. But I, I will tell you, he's he's a very friendly guy. He's always at practice. He'll come over, um, you know, maybe once a week or so and, you know, just uh, – Chit chat with reporters about different things. And so it's not like he's locked in a room somewhere and doesn't care about football. You know, he does have a, a hands on approach and he's, he does interact with the media, although you may not see it all the time. And it's, uh, it's quite a bit different from the, the original owner I covered on the Jets, which of course is the late Leon Hess, who was uh, a huge oil baron. And unlike Christopher Johnson, or even Woody Johnson, for that matter, Leon Hess did not show up a lot. You know, maybe once a year you'd see him out at practice on Thanksgiving Day. But other than that, he was a very reclusive guy. He did not say much. When he showed up, it was like as as if royalty was coming in the way people treated him around the building. And he was a well-liked guy. He was a man of respect and dignity. I I never had any crosswords with him. He always treated me fairly. The very little interaction we had. I think probably the most famous moment I can recall is when he introduced Bill Parcells as the head coach in 1997. Leon actually did the press conference and which was stunning in itself because it was Greta Garbo-esque. He was so reclusive and here he was at a press conference and he absolutely stole the show. He was talking about his negotiations with the NFL and the Patriots to try to extract Parcells from his contract with the Patriots. And he told this anecdote stemming from his uh, oil deals that he had, you know, as part of his oil deals, he had to deal with some ruthless dictators in the Middle East. And he told this story about Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. He said, one time I had a meeting with Gaddafi many years ago in Libya, and he goes, let's just say that he put a revolver on the table during the negotiations. So, and he said, and I'm here now. So I think that was his way of saying that he could handle himself at a bargaining table because he made it through a Qaddafi negotiation where there was a gun on the table. And the entire press conference just was partly in stitches and partly in shock that here was Leon Hess just captivating the room, this old guy with such a charisma about him. And I thought it was uh, really a memorable moment from Leon Hess. But like I said, he came out once a year, if that, just to say hello and wish you a happy Thanksgiving. But that one press conference was so memorable. And I was thinking about it the other day when Christopher Johnson was talking to a few of the reporters on how times have changed. And uh, at least the owner is there on a daily basis now. It ain't like it used to be, but there was certain uh, there was a certain, like I said, charisma with Leon Hess because he didn't come around that often that when he did, it was just almost so captivating and the Qaddafi story is something I'll never forget as someone who's covered the team for three decades. But anyway, that is a wrap on this week's show. I want to thank our special guest, Mark Gastineau, for coming aboard and sharing his uh, very optimistic health update and some great memories of his legendary career with the Jets. Thanks to Jeff Scopin, our producer, for putting it all together. And please, please subscribe to this podcast, Flight Deck. You can get it wherever you find your podcasts. We think we have something good here, and the Jets are winning, so we'll have some interesting stuff to talk about over the final few weeks. And so thanks for checking in. Jets Raiders this week at home. I'm going to pick the Raiders because I think 
The Jets are, this is a big jump in quarterback level play that they'll be facing. It's a far cry from Dwayne Haskins to Derek Carr. And Carr's got a good thing going now. I know it's always tough for those Western teams for the Eastern travel on a 1 a.m. start, a 1 p.m. start. But I do think the Raiders have something going and will overcome that and will beat the Jets who are just decimated at cornerback. So in light of that, we'll see how it goes. And once again, thanks for popping in. And just remember, when in doubt, don't punt. Go for it.